Again, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll read verses 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more are matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Now, we studied this a couple of weeks and saw that the theme that the Apostle Paul is following as he goes through this section of 1 Corinthians is the theme of judgment. In 1 Corinthians 5, he's speaking to them about the importance of judging in the church and not judging out of the church, not judging those who make no claim of Jesus, but judging anyone who does claim to be a believer, to be a so-called brother. And the particular sin that he has seen the church refuses to judge is a sin that we all think we would certainly judge, and that's the sin of incest. A man is married to his father's wife. And we look at that and we say, well, what was wrong with those Corinthians? You know, that they would be proud when they have a guy in the middle of them who's coming to the Lord's table and sitting in worship and and he has his father's wife. And it's hard for us to get our minds around that. So the Apostle Paul shames them for having that man in their midst. And he says, expel the man. Uh, you can't have that man a part of the church. Hand him over to the Satan so that his soul might be saved. Do church discipline so that you protect the honor of God, his reputation is at stake with your church, so that you protect the church, you don't want other people giving themselves to incest like this man, and third, so that this man's soul might be saved. But then, like any good writer, he's anticipating the objections of the people as he writes them. And so he's, he's, he's listening to them, they're not really talking, but he's listening because they're talking to him because he knows what they're thinking, and they're thinking, well, wait a second. Um, we do judge the world, but we don't judge the church. And, 
and we're very proud of loving each other and of being tolerant when it comes to the church. And he, he, he then goes on and he says, wait, about this judgment thing, you've got it backwards. When I said not to judge, I didn't mean don't judge the people in the church. I meant don't judge the world. God will judge the world. Leave that to God. But are you not to judge those in the church? So you've got incest, and he looks at them, and he's listening, and they're saying, well, we just, we, we keep clean from the world. But then they, this guy incest inside the church. And he says, wait, wait, wait. I told you not to judge. I didn't mean don't judge those in the world, or in the church. I meant don't judge those in the world. God will handle the world. But are you not to judge in the church? What are you guys doing here? All those beautiful red heads. Sorry. All right, I'm back. That's why I try never to look at you guys. So I don't see who's here. Welcome, Scott and Marcy. Love to have you here. Um, now, stop for a second and think about this. What would cause a church to judge the world but not one another? Well, for one thing, the world isn't here this morning. Lord willing, we'll get to the point where the world will come in to hear the preaching of the world. But generally, the world isn't here this morning. And if you judge the person that's next to you, that's pretty nasty. Because that person oftentimes will resent your judgment, resent your rebuke, resent your admonition, resent your correction, and they'll make you pay. <laughs> right? And so there's a good reason we judge people that are somewhere else. Because we don't want them to punish us, right? So, for instance, um, this is why gossip happens. Because you want to show that you have discernment, but you just don't want to show it in the context where it's helpful. Right? And so, if you could actually speak to me about going over time when I preach, that could be helpful to everybody. But instead, you complain to other people because then you can show that you see my sins, but you don't have to worry about me telling you to shut up. Right? There's good reason why we're always prophets at a distance. We're so perceptive at a distance. We're so able to see the problems. And I noticed this most when I first went into the ministry and I was in the Mainline Presbyterian Church USA. And every magazine of theirs I picked up, every Presbytery meeting I went to, every single thing I heard from them, it was all about El Salvador and South Africa and apartheid. And I mean, they were in high dudgeon about South Africa. Oh boy, the racism of South Africa. Everything you heard, you know, they, they were going to make uh, the denomination's pension fund disinvest all its money in South Africa. Now... That's fine, you know. If you want to show your opposition to apartheid by disinvesting in South Africa, that's fine. But the thing that really struck me was that they had a denominational policy that said abortion could be, quote, an act of faithfulness before God. Now, how do you condemn separate living arrangements and economic oppression at the tip of Africa 
and be prophetic there, and you be prophetic about El Salvador, and then when it comes to South College Avenue, and my daughter and your next-door neighbor, all of a sudden you, you say, well, that can be an act of faithfulness before God. I mean, how does that work? Well, the way it works is that all of us have a tendency to be prophets at a distance. We choose to show our discernment and to be prophetic in places where there won't be real pain on our part for being prophetic, but when there's pain involved, we don't do it. And so I don't want you telling me my problems. I want you to tell me Barack Obama's problems because he's not here to defend himself, and we can feel superior about seeing his problems. And I won't tell you your problems if you won't tell me mine. And that's about the level of most churches and families and marriages. Right? Most marriages are a, uh, an agreement to not tell you your problems if you won't tell me mine. In fact, I think that's in the vowels, isn't it? And so when it comes to the church, what is true in most churches is that the church uh, avoids obeying God where Scripture says that we are to submit to those in authority over us in the Lord. We are just working double time trying to avoid the appearance of any authority as elders. Because if, if we demonstrate any authority, then... People on the internet will write against us, people that we've disciplined. And we don't want anybody on the internet writing against us because how, how do you deal with that, you know? You can't go to Google and ask them to delete the cache, you know? Okay, now listen. The church in Corinth was very proud, very sophisticated, very tolerant. And in their midst, they had a man who was living with his father's wife. He was married to her. That's what the Greek means, okay? And they were proud. They, were, they just thought they were the cat's meow of a church. They probably called themselves a mega church with super apostles. They had a guy in the midst who was living with his dad's wife. But they were so, so clear in their judgments about the world. All right, so they could have told you all the failures of the world, but when it came to their church, they couldn't see the elephant in the room, right? And the Apostle Paul's dealing with them, and he says, look, when I told you not to judge, I didn't mean don't judge those in the church. What I was saying is don't judge the world. That's God's job, but are we not to judge in the church? And then he's on the theme of judgment, and then he says, by the way, this thing about judgment, why are you guys going to court against each other? You dare to go to court against each other? How could you do this? How could you go to court again? What? You're going to pagans now. Okay, first, you're like judging the pagans. You're not judging incest in the middle of the church. I told you, don't judge the world. God will judge it. But are you not to judge those in the church? But now you have ought against each other. You've stolen from him or he's... Uh, there's that word again. Frauded. He's defrauded you, not just stolen, but stolen under false pretenses is what defrauded means. He's defrauded you, and now you're going to the pagans to judge you. You see, everything about judgment was wrong in the Corinthian church. 
You know, judgment was where it shouldn't be, and it wasn't where it should be. It was judging the world and then asking the world to judge them, but scrupulously avoiding judging one another. Isn't that something? I keep telling you, it's our nature to make a big show of giving God what he wants and then robbing him of it. Yeah. But I am obeying, mommy. You know. And so, does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law? That shows how awful it was. You dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? The Greek there is the word that we get our word criterion from. Any of you ever watched a, a bike race? Um, any of you ever seen the magazine that I enjoy reading and subscribing to called The New Criterion? Any of you ever? Anybody admit to that? Oh, Ben. Well, it's your last Sunday, so you give it all you got your last Sunday. <laughs> we'll miss you. Criterion are... standards. Well, it can be a number of different things, but they're standards by which discernment is exercised. Um, and so he says, look, even by the smallest standards, the smallest court cases, the smallest disagreements, the smallest uh, um, bases for making judgments, uh, are you not competent to make those decisions. Do you not know that we will judge angels? So now he heightens it a little bit and he goes from we judge the world to we'll judge angels. How much more are matters of this life? So in other words, in the life to come, we will judge men. In the life to come, we will judge angels. How could you not judge even the smallest disagreements, the smallest cases? How could you not discern between even the most insignificant criteria here in this life? So if you have law courts, verse 4, dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? And what does he mean by that? Well, the NASB, which is what I'm reading from, clears up an ambiguity. And that's one thing you, you should be aware of in Bible translation, that there are many places where the Holy Spirit in the original Greek and Hebrew inspired ambiguity. Now, it sounds crazy, I know. How could the Holy Spirit inspire ambiguity? But you know, as husbands and wives, sometimes in speaking to your children, you're ambiguous, and that ambiguity you use in speaking to them is to tease out of them discernment or love or affection or something. Well, the Holy Spirit uses ambiguity in Scripture to pull things from us, to make our minds work harder. All right? The NASB here, though, takes the ambiguity away from you. And what you want to do is always choose a Bible translation that protects as much ambiguity as possible so that you have to work harder. <laughs> and so what it says here in the NASB is, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? And that's resolving 
the debate over what the meaning of that statement is in one direction, but the other possibility is the one I think is right. And that is, can't you appoint even those of least reputation in your church? In other words, okay, so you don't have a member of the Supreme Court of the United States in your congregation to take this matter to. What about the stupid idiot that sits sucking his thumb in, in the kitchen with the door shut? Can't even he handle this, the one of least reputation in your church? The way they've resolved it is to say that what it means is that you're going to non-believers and that they are of least reputation in the church or no account in the church because they're non-believers, therefore they have no standing in the church. It's not a big deal. They resolved it in that direction. And then he says this, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? Now, brethren in the New Testament, if it's kept intact, as it is in the Greek, brethren means fellow believers. It includes both men and women. All right. So when it says brothers here, it's brothers and sisters, but the male term is used as the inclusive one. And he says, isn't there one? Now, think about this. In the Old Testament, we have an account where Moses is judging the Israelites, and constant problems are brought to him. People that have disagreements, border contests, uh, marriage issues, uh, child issues, property issues, labor issues, wage issues, cloak issues, just constant, constant problems brought to Moses. His father-in-law comes to visit and sees it. And his father-in-law is named Jethro. And after Jethro watches it, he comes to Moses. He says, listen, Moses, you're not going to be able to sustain this. It's too hard. What you need to do is you need to appoint men to help you in the work of judgment. Now, what are the proportions? Do you remember? No, you got that one wrong, Mr. Mathematician. That's just made my day. I mean, do you know how many times mathematicians have given me D's and F's? <laughs> and this is my one little bit of revenge. <laughs> Normally, the word seven is always the right answer to any... He said 17? 70. Because you're a mathematician, I'm beginning to question myself, but I think it's, I think it's 10, right? Yeah, it's 10. Linda says it's 10. It's 10. All right. Thank you, Linda. So what they did was they divided Israel up into groups of 10, groups of 100, groups of 1,000, groups of 10,000, 100,000. All right. It was a decimal system. All right. And for every 10 people, there was one judge. That's how they divided it up. Now, I want you to think about this a second. When I say people, I mean men or family units. In other words, it wasn't all the children and all the aunts and uncles and all that. It was a, a family unit. And so David Johnson would be one. Despite having a whole family, it would be David Johnson. And it wouldn't be Elliot Huck. It would be his father until this next year when you moved to Vanderbilt, and then you'd be a unit, but a pretty pathetic one. And Eric, I don't know how to think about you. You, <laughs> it would be your dad, all right? 
Okay, now let's do it. One, let's say you're in Vandy. Two, three, four, Jason five, Bob six, Scott seven, eight, nine, not really. You would be under Stephen, and ten. Richard, sorry about this, but um, you're a family unit, all right? Now think about who this is. This is this little group here, and there's one man. Now I go over here, there's another. Back there, there's another. There, 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 and there, all right? Do you realize how heavy the workload is of judging between God's people? This, this was the people of God, all right? And for every 10 family units, there were judges. Now think about that. Do you think they had any work to do? One of the things this shows us is how constantly we are bickering with each other. We have disagreements all the time. You know, one of the biggest disagreements we have is it's called marriage counseling. You wouldn't believe how many disagreements there are between husbands and wives. And so elders constantly work to counsel and to resolve disagreements between wives and husbands. And then you've got the disagreements between children and their parents. Then you have the disagreements between bosses and their employees. And that doesn't even address issues like where you have a house that's built for a family in the church, and one of the persons that works for their general contractor is the plumber who's in the church. And when they pay for the plumbing, it turns out the general contractor is a Christian and has sold himself to the community as being a Christian contractor who will do it cheaper than anyone else. He takes the money they give him and he uses it for another house. So when it comes time for your man, who's a plumber, to get paid, your man, who's having a house built by your man, the plumber, finds that the money has gone someplace else. And so you have a plumber out tons of money for equipment, for employees' wages, and you have the person whose house he put his money into, but the money went to a general contractor as a Christian went somewhere else. That's the kind of thing the elders deal with here also. That's a real story. Okay? And so what this shows us is that the Corinthian church is just a normal church. They judged the world. They wouldn't judge themselves, right? Then they said, well, you told us not to judge. Judge not lest you be judged. That verse is probably known by more people than John 3.16. Make a big show of, well, you told us not to judge. And then when you look at what they're actually doing, they are going and asking the secular courts to judge between them over things like husbands, wives, money for the plumber, all this other stuff that's going on between them. And the Apostle Paul says, dare you go to the pagan courts? Don't you know you're going to judge men? Don't you know you're going to judge angels? Don't you have even one person among you that can make these judgments that you can bring this stuff to? And you look back at Moses, and Moses appoints one for how many, Chris? Thank you. One for ten, and then ten for a hundred, you see? And that's about the right proportion, right? He says, verse 5, 
Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brothers? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. And the reason he says that before unbelievers is that it's a scandal. It's a terrible blot on the name of Jesus for people who claim him as their Lord and Savior to go before pagans to try to get revenge or to try to get money out of other Christians. Because it shows pagans that what matters to us is our money and our reputation and our bitterness, not God and his glory. And then he says, actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And so you can see that the Apostle Paul was pouring on failures, sins. Do you see this? He starts by talking about the issue that they're going to court, dare you go to court, and then he talks about the fact that there's not even one among you who's able to decide between his brothers, and then he talks about the fact that they're not even willing to be wronged. He says, why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? In other words, they're so firm in holding on to their rights and their money and their reputation that they will not give in to somebody else, right? Now, is that you? It's so funny to watch your faces. Because you wouldn't believe how expressive your faces are. Okay, I'm going to ask again. Is that you? Are you that kind of person? Are you the kind of person that wants your pound of flesh out of somebody that wrongs you? Here's me, right? I cannot even tolerate the person that slows down at the yield sign at a roundabout. That's me. (laughs) And and you're going to talk about somebody that takes money from me? That is us. That's you and that's me. We will not be wronged. Now, sometimes some of you wives are not as intense in uh, protecting your own reputation as you are your husband's or your children. In other words, some of us are very good at moving it slightly away from ourselves, like it's sort of a look at the birdie routine. You know, we're okay. You know, the Jewish mother, how many Jewish mothers does it take to change a light bulb? None, I'll just sit here in the dark. Right? (laughs) But boy, you touch her children, and she's not willing to be wronged, right? And so in the Corinthian church... It wasn't just that they were, had all kinds of pretenses about their judgments, and it wasn't just that they were going to pagans to ask to get their money back or their reputation or their pound of flesh, but it was also that they were simply unwilling to be wronged. They were unwilling to have anybody take money that belonged to them. They were unwilling to have anybody deceive them when they took money that belonged to them. So the Apostle Paul continues to shame them. And he just shows what? Well, that their lives are consumed by pride and greed. And 
bitterness, right? Now, what about us? Is that us? Are our lives consumed by pride and greed and bitterness? Is your life consumed by pride and greed and bitterness? You say, well, not consumed. I I don't think you should use such a strong word. But sometimes, in some certain circumstances, when my guard is down and my wife isn't there to helpfully remind me, and maybe I've missed church, I could be vulnerable to that. You guys, come on. Your life is consumed by pride and greed and bitterness. That's what your life is consumed by. You keep track of wrongs, you're unwilling to be wronged, and you're certainly unwilling for people to wrong you intentionally. You're certainly opposed to people defrauding you. And so the Apostle Paul says, Wouldn't, aren't you willing to be wronged? Aren't you willing to be defrauded? And the answer is what? Come on, the answer is no, thank you. The answer is no, I'm not willing. And you think by this time he's done, right? All right, Paul, truce, unconditional surrender. You've got my number. Now help. And so he does. Here's what he says next. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and you do this even to your brothers. Listen. This is scripture. Scripture is precious. And scripture is precious to us because it gets our number. It just gets us. And it's the Holy Spirit doing that. It's not me. The Holy Spirit inspired these words and every time we think, relent, uncle, it then intensifies it. Okay? Do you feel the intensification of these chapters? They grow and grow and grow. And about the time you're willing to say, okay, fine, I twist judgment. Every chance I get, I twist judgment. Then it begins to focus on the fact that you're not just judgmental and arrogant, but you're also unwilling to be wronged, and you're also unwilling to have people deceive you when they wrong you. And then you're, all right, I give in. And then it says this to you. In fact, it's not just that you're not willing to be wrong, but you're wronging others. And you go, I thought we were talking about my wife's problems. You know, I thought we were talking about that dude that did incest. But Paul's moved on. The Holy Spirit has you in his sights. And it's because God is merciful that he speaks to you. It's not because he's nasty. It's not because he is trying to reduce you to hopelessness. But it's because he loves you. Now listen to this. Here's what it says. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. So it's not just that you overlook something that you owe to somebody. You know, you can forget about a debt. But it says defraud, and that means you intentionally have lied as a method of not paying back the debt you owe. 
All right, this is what it says about us. And then it says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And you go, oh, man. So now it's going to threaten me with hell? Whatever happened to grace? Why is it saying, don't you know that the people that do these things won't inherit the kingdom of God? I'm a Christian. I need to be encouraged. I need to be uplifted. And here's the answer, brothers and sisters. The answer is that for God to say to you, you wrong people, you defraud them, don't you know that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God is for God to love you and for him to warn you and for him to encourage you and for him to be graceful. That's grace. It's grace for God to say to me and to you that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's graceful. You say, well, how can it be graceful? It's graceful because you do not deserve knowing the future. You don't even deserve that. God does not owe you knowledge of who will and won't be in the kingdom of God. God said to your father, your federal head, Adam, the day you do this, you will surely die. And from the moment that Adam took of that fruit and ate it, you have had a death sentence on you. You, not him, you. Because you're his descendant. You were in him when he sinned. And so for God to give you a warning saying those that do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God is for God to be graceful to you. Because the world is filled with people who are completely deceived and who deny that any of these sins will cause them to go to hell. As a matter of fact, the world is in the process of demanding that Christians not say that these sins will lead them to hell. The world believes that it has a right to silence Christians under the rubric of hate crimes for saying that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You are not deserved the wonderful gift from God of being told that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a gift from God, and it's a what gift? It's graceful. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And you say to me, well, it's thinking about the unrighteous. And a couple weeks ago, you talked about how the unrighteous are those who don't belong to Christ, but we belong to Christ. And I say to you, look at the text. The text is dealing with Christians, all right? Brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually, then, it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another, Christians with Christians. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary... It doesn't say they wrong and defraud each other. It says you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren, and that's the word for Christians. So he's talking about Christians who wrong and defraud each other. And then he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The reason he says that is that he's warning 
those within the church of Corinth that if they do these things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is not a warning for pagans. This is a warning for Christians who are defrauding each other. And he's saying, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. I have to hammer that home because so many churches do everything they can to keep you from ever coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and from ever, ever fearing for your own soul. You know, it's like Roosevelt's here today. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. No. We are to fear God. And to become a Christian is not to get a, you know, get out of jail free card that we never have to fear God. In the God we fear and love embrace. So Paul is exhorting you to fear God at this point. Now watch what he does here. At this point, all of us think, okay, that's enough. Now give us the good news. But here's what he does. He says, do not be deceived. Now who is he talking to, unbelievers or believers? So in other words, believers must always be susceptible to being deceived and to thinking that they can do those things and go to heaven, right? Okay. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, how many of those things are you? Are you covetous? Are you a swindler? Are you effeminate? I can't even ask you if you're effeminate because it's a word that's outlawed today. What do you mean effeminate? Are you sexist? What do you mean? You mean I wear pink shirts? Who was it that wore a pink shirt this last week? Oh, I know. It was uh, um, Luis. Only machismo men can wear pink shirts. We don't even know what effeminate means today. We don't really know what fornication means today. We don't really know what adultery means today. What is a reviler? In the first uh, service, I said to David Talcott, leaving for New York City to teach philosophy at King's College, that probably the word reviler is a perfect description of the academy today. It is a community of revilers.
Do you revile God? How about a thief? How about a drunkard? Now, at this point, every one of us should have identified in ourselves a number of these sins. Not just one, but we should see in ourselves a number of these sins. And we should be asking ourselves, how can I be saved? How can I go to heaven? I have struggled against this sin for decades, and it continues to dog me. And so the Apostle Paul has said that I shouldn't be deceived, that I will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's still in my heart, and so I'm without hope. He's, 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 he's brought you way down, way down. There's no pride in you at this point. There's no self-justification. There's no, I'm clean. Because scripture has convicted you. And then he says this. He says, such were, past tense, some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And so you go, well, there you have it, you know. I'm still constantly tempted by those sins and often fall into them. And it says I was washed, but apparently I haven't been washed because they still dog me. They're after me every single day. All right? And so I must be a cast-off. I must not belong to God. And this is what you have to understand. You have to understand that Scripture wants you, the Holy Spirit wants you. It is God's intent for you to live right there in that place. And it's not my job to keep you out of that place. The Apostle Paul said what he said so that you would fall on your face before God and repent now and then come to the table by faith. And that's Christianity. That's the highest hope we have in Christianity. That every time we hear the Spirit of God, we say, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I am a man of unclean thoughts. I am a greedy man. I'm a covetous man. Woe is me. I am not deceived. I know these things. God's wrath comes on men that do these things. I know that the man that does these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then you say, but I was washed. And you say, but if I had been washed, I wouldn't have the temptations anymore. And I say, no, 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 you've got it wrong. Christians desire three things with regard to sin. Justification, that it doesn't condemn. Sanctification, that it doesn't reign, R-E-I-G-N, like a king. And glorification, that it won't be. 
that it isn't. And so what we really ought to do is get our minds out of the world and begin to look at Sally Wagner as somebody that's about to be glorified. (laughs) And what a relief it'll be for Sally Wagner. Honestly. Once and for all. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty. She will be free at last. I want to make one more comment about the text. You've heard the sin list, and you've heard that the people that do these things will not be in heaven. They'll be in hell. They'll be under God's judgment, right? And you've heard that you were this, but you were washed by the Holy Spirit. And you go, oh yeah, but I still fall into them. I still desire them. You were washed. You were washed. And you go, but I still fall into them. And the Holy Spirit says to you, don't be deceived. The one who does these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But you were washed. There's the pressure. Now, let me ask you this question. If we're not to judge the world, but if the man that gives himself to homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, will go to hell. The woman that gives herself to lesbianism will go to hell. If we're not to judge, but the one that gives herself to lesbianism will will go to hell, how do we live today? And what, what are we supposed to live like? All right? And once again, you know how I say that we always do the opposite of what God asks us to do, but make a big show of doing what he asks us to do? What the American church today is filled with is people who have gotten it, that we're not to judge the world. And so they all say, I'm okay with homosexual marriage. I'm okay with people tempted by same-sex intimacy. I'm okay with the whole gay culture, because really, how could they know any different? You know? They don't have the Holy Spirit in them. So, of course, people who are tempted by that are going to give themselves to it because they don't. But I have the Holy Spirit. And so it's a private revelation I have, and I have the ability of knowing what God says about that. They don't. So I shouldn't judge them. Remember how I say every time we come up to judgment, we always make a big show of giving God? So now, here we are. You said don't judge the world, so I'm not going to judge the world. I'm okay with homosexual marriage. I'm okay with homosexuality. You know, I don't want to be fine for hate crime. I don't want to be small-minded about who I pull the lever for in the voting booth. I'm tolerant. Now listen. Your brother, right, is homosexually inclined. And your brother goes around demanding that everybody say that he just has a different set of sexual preferences than you do, right? And he makes no claim of belonging to Jesus. He doesn't honor the word. And so his lifestyle is in perfect conformity with what his mouth says, And so the Bible says, don't judge the world, God will judge them, right? And you love your brother, and so you just leave him alone, right? Right? (laughs) You just 
let him go in his sin, and you're very careful to avoid anything that could be called a hate crime. You're very careful to avoid anything that might add to the weight of a teenager and cause him to kill himself. You don't want to speak negatively about his sexual preference because he might commit suicide. And so what we're doing as Christians is instead of honoring the text of God's word, we're making a big show of avoiding judging the world, when what we're really doing is avoiding having to suffer, having to be a seed that's planted in the ground and that dies for the sake of souls. Does this make sense to you? So the whole world is trying to get us to shut up about sexual sin being sin. Adultery, fornication, sodomy, incest, whatever it is. The whole world is trying to get us to shut up about it. And we say, well, you know, that, that's kind of like what Paul says. We're not to judge the world. Okay, I learned. But you haven't learned at all. Because how is anybody supposed to know that they will not enter heaven because they're greedy and because they're a homosexual and because they're a fornicator. If you don't tell them, how can you love your neighbor if you withhold from your neighbor the truth that those who give themselves to these things will never inherit the kingdom of God? How could that be love? How could it be love? Now, here's the problem. The minute you open your mouth, you know what is going to happen? They're going to tell you that you're just saying that because you're a Republican or you're a Libertarian or you're a Tea Partier and that it's really political power that you desire, that you want your people to win and the people that aren't your people to lose, that it's all your political aspirations. Do you understand this? They're going to tell you that you're all about your subculture and wanting it to not become a backwater thing in the United States, that you're insecure, that, that, that it's all a working out of your personal psychological dynamics and desire for political stability or something, right? In other words, you will be misunderstood. You will be viewed as making a political statement when what you're saying is the judgment is coming. Do you understand that? Now, Remember what he says? Aren't you willing to be wronged? Can't you be wronged? Can't you live with other people thinking things about you that aren't true for the sake of a soul? Can't you live with being misunderstood because you love your neighbor? Do we have to work so hard to keep people from thinking that we're being political that we are silent in the face of souls that are going to hell? Are we so lacking in compassion for our neighbor that we'll go ahead and do everything we can to not be accused of a hate crime or of causing people to commit suicide? Or Listen. You remember what Jesus said? He's on his way up to Jerusalem. You remember the scripture lesson that was read to us by Josh? And he says what? Do you remember it? Here's what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth 
and dies. It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Can I ask you this week to please die? Would you please die? Go ahead and die. Let your tiny, tiny mustard seed of faith fall into the ground. And let it rot. Because you have the promise of God that if you do that, you will bear much fruit. Go ahead, be a sinner. Admit how many of these things are true of you. Look at God's mercy to you that despite these things that you were washed. And then go to other people that have the same sin that you have but who won't repent and won't believe. Throw your seed in the ground, let it rot, and wait. And then watch the Holy Spirit work. After all, every single one of you can tell them how the Lord saved you. You know? Think of being able to tell them how you are tempted by same-sex intimacy. How you are a lesbian. How you were washed from stealing. Why not glorify God by making yourself nothing? Go ahead, die. And then let's next week count the fruit. That's my way of saying, what do you think? Can we do it? Do you know anybody you can die with? Lots of people. So Esther's ahead of you. She has many people she knows she can die with. What about you? you have anybody you can die with? Are you surrounded by Christians that you've all agreed that you won't die at all? (laughs) Okay, okay. All right, all right. Huh? Listen, if Jesus said that, it must have some application to our life. And that's true for you who are young and for those of us who are old. There must be a place that we can die. What is it? And if you say, well, I'm not going to give myself to lust this week, I say, that's pathetic. You have to give yourself by faith to Christ. You can't just sit around trying to keep your hands clean. You have to go out and give yourself to people. 
be a Christian. Here's an idea. Let's have Christians in Bloomington. <laughs> you know, people going around being real fruitful by dying. Hey, Cole? Huh? Now, listen, many of you are, and I love you. But let's have more. All right, let's pray. Dear Jesus, we are weak and fearful, and we thank you for convicting us of sin and showing us that without the Holy Spirit, we would be adulterers and fornicators and murderers and thieves and slanderers. We thank you, Father, that you have washed us from these sins. And we pray this week that we will testify to what you've done in us, that we will go into the ground and die, that we might be fruitful. Now feed us at your table, we pray. Strengthen us so that when we go from here, we have hope that the Holy Spirit will use us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 11, the words of institution of our Lord. Recorded by the Apostle Paul, who wrote, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also, our Savior took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. All of you drink of it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes again. Our habit as a church is for everybody who believes in Jesus have brought their sin to him and been washed from it by faith. For them to be welcome at the table, We ask one thing, which is that you do have elders of some church that you do submit to. Men with names that you do submit to. In other words, that you're a part of a Bible-believing church uh, if you're to come to this table. But regardless of what church it is, we welcome you. We're happy to have you around the table with us. And these men that will be serving you are elders of this church. That means they're hosts, they're fathers of the household. And if you have any spiritual fear, if you want to talk to somebody about whether or not these sins are actually washed in your life or whether you're still on the other side and you have not been forgiven by God, would you talk to me about it? Would you come to me and talk to me? Would you pray and ask God to move you from death to life and to wash you of these sins? And any other problem, fear, need, talk to the elders, to the pastors, to me. We'd be happy to serve you.